We really want something that's more plug and play, leading edge, going to drive more value, you know, things like that. We're not going to wait around to try to configure that in the ERP systems. We're going to go straight to a partner and get that plug and play solution. Welcome to the GBS Masterminds podcast, the one and only platform for global business service leaders to share their experiences of building world-class shared service organizations. My name is Sashi Narahari, founder and CEO of HiRadius, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm honored to host Rob Bradford, a GBS leader with over 30 years of experience in the shared services space. Rob is a recognized leader and innovator in the GBS community and has been a key leader in the development of five large shared service organizations. He currently serves as the vice president of GBS at Zimmer Biomed. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Sashi. It's great to be on here with you. Rob, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career journey? I started uh, in college getting an internship with uh, Anderson Consulting. And since then, I decided to pursue this work for a living for the rest of my career. And, and to date, I've lived in five different countries around the world. I've probably worked in 20 or 30 other countries. I've been doing GBS for, for 30 years, even though it's not where I started. You know, Growing up as a kid, I wanted to be Carl Sagan. So I was really into astrophysics and mathematics and cosmology. And that's what I was trying to pursue in college until I I made this career change early on, but certainly the the uh, astrophysics is certainly my um, my passion still. So I still do a lot of astrophotography. For those who can see the pictures on the wall behind me, these are some of the pictures I've taken with my telescope over the years. Often inviting friends and neighbors over to do some stargazing in my in my front yard. Rob, I'm going to start with the six million dollar questions that are most debated in the GBS world today. The first one is captive center or outsourcing. You've spent a good bit of your career starting shared services, GBS organizations from the ground up. What is your opinion? Should you do outsourcing or captive center? I don't think there's one right answer. They're both uh, very strong uh, methods for, for transforming a function. I've certainly done both my entire career, you know, all 30 years. Uh, what I've focused on more in the last probably 10 years now is getting very precise about why you want to do one or the other and not making it a random exercise. And what I've found is based on individual stakeholders' personal histories, you know, they may have an affinity for one or the other, or they may have an affinity not to do either because they had a bad experience at a previous company. And instead of letting these arguments break out and fester, we decided to put together a methodology that actually helps people and guides us to what the right answer should be. And that really should be based on the nature of your process itself. And so, um, you know, just as one example, you know, we found multiple dimensions of, of making this choice. But one example might be something like intellectual property that's involved with an activity. If this activity, let's just say, is responsible for maintaining the secret formula for Coca-Cola, you're not going to want to give that to an outsource provider no matter how good they are, you're going to want to keep that in-house. So what we discovered is there's about 10 good questions that you can ask about a process that resolve who should be doing that work. And if I look historically and say, you know, where do companies that I've been part of settle down uh, ultimately, it usually, we find a comfortable mix at around 60-40 uh, split, about 60% being captive and about 40% being outsourced provider. Got it. And then tell us a little bit about those uh... 
10 good questions for the methodology that you, uh, for the benefit of the listeners and the viewers here, of how to think about captive versus outsourcing? Sure. So we decided to look at this on a two-dimensional scale. So we have a matrix that, that breaks out the, the options for placement into three, what we call the who options. And the who options would be the BPO, the, the captive shared service, or retaining with the business or the function, things that shouldn't move, let's say, into GBS. And then on the other dimension, we look at three where locations. Should, should this work be performed onshore? Should it be performed offshore or kind of the middle ground, a nearshore uh, delivery option? So we've, like I said before, have about 10 questions that identify the who in that equation. And we have another uh, six or seven questions that identify the where. And these are all done on a Likert scale. It creates a nice scatter plot that takes an end-to-end process and breaks out all the activities to show who and where they could best be done uh, to maximize value. And, you know, I would say there's still a little bit of art form that's left at the end for, you know, an experienced practitioner like myself or the people I work with to deal with the outliers, but the methodology takes care of, you know, 90, 95% of the decision-making process. Awesome. All right. That brings me to the second million dollar question. (laughs) Harmonize and standardize first or lift and shift first? I will say that over my career that the lift and shift option has yielded better results for me in the end than transform and shift. What we found, you know, when you really kind of unpack it, it makes a lot of sense to do the opposite. And I'll highlight two or three examples why. Number one, you know, we're hiring very smart people in these centers. A lot of people have a misconception that we're hiring people right out of college who don't understand anything. Number two, it's a lot easier to move all the process centrally where you can compare and contrast the process from different regions or different countries and systems, and then directly re-engineer it with kind of all things on the table collectively together. And then the third one that I like to bring up is more of a psychological reason. There's really no incentive for the legacy staff to want to fix the process. You know, if they know that the the fixing of this process is going to result then in it being moved offshore and and their jobs potentially going away, what we find often is that there's a real slow play to do that transformation. So for all those reasons, like I said, lift and shift has worked better for me. But I want to make it clear that lift and shift doesn't mean you don't transform. You absolutely transform. You just do it after you shift. You bet. Million dollar question number three. I know you co-founded Prometheus GBS. Maybe you should tell us a little bit about that and work with many GBS organizations in implementing large-scale technologies. What has been your experience in the area of RPA and its success? Yeah, Prometheus GBS was a, a small company that I put together with a couple of other experts that have been doing GBS for 20 or 30 years and advising some of our peers in the industry. When it comes to the question of RPA, yeah, I was an early adopter 15, 20 years ago when it first started popping up. We probably made the rookie mistake that everybody makes in believing the hype and thinking that we would build a robot and it would take over all the human labor and we would save millions overnight. And, you know, the early attempts never really seemed to meet that promise. And in fact, we struggled for quite some time to figure out, were we doing something wrong or was the software just not what it was, you know, chalked up to be? So the astrophysicist in me decided to, you know, chime in with a mathematical and methodological approach. And, you know, over time, we figured that there were two really good cases for implementing 
RPA. And if you were sticking to those two cases, you, you would have good results. Um, so the two buckets, one was for very high volume and low complexity processes where there's not a lot of decision making. If it's just a straightforward transactional process, you know, it's pretty easy to, to configure those and get those running and, and limit the number of exceptions that are coming out of them. The other use case that we found helpful was when we brought in a process that still had a lot of just horrible manual activity associated with it. I remember one case where we brought in a, a process to compile a daily sales report across all of our BUs. And every night, hundreds of spreadsheets would come in and we had a, an army of people who did nothing but cut, copy, paste things out of spreadsheets into a report. And, you know, that's another great way to free up that human labor. And, and in that case, you're not really trying to replace the labor as much as you're trying to, A, make the life of those employees better and B, free up their time to do something that's more innovative and not just, you know, cut, copy, paste. So if we met those two criteria, one of those two criteria, we usually pursued the, the RPA. But uh, what we find is, is that we're probably doing it a lot less these days. We pursue a lot fewer opportunities than we did in the past because we're more precise about where it really makes sense. Awesome. All right. I know you have helped many GBS organizations execute major transformations. What, according to you, is the secret recipe to transform GBS from cost-cutting to revenue growth? oriented organization? I would say that, you know, first of all, what I found over, over time is that trust is key. We have to prove ourselves kind of one step at a time. So even though GBS organizations fancy themselves as being high value delivery mechanisms, uh, I think we have to actually show that we can do the simple transactional stuff first and build on those successes. I would say the next thing is, is alignment to end-to-ends is so critical to me for a thousand reasons that we could go into you know, on a whole other uh, podcast. But when we talk about moving into revenue, the power of the end-to-ends really comes to light. So what I find is that you prove yourself on the downstream part of the end-to-ends typically, your AR, your AP, your um, record-to-report type of uh, transactional work. And when you prove yourself, you start to slowly creep up to the upstream part of those end-to-end processes. So into order entry and customer service and things like that. So prove yourself downstream and slowly creep upstream. And as you creep upstream, the last piece of advice I would give people is when you start to get into the area of, of revenue, you know, when you start talking about customer interactions and things like that, never go in with a holistic approach on day one. You will scare the hell out of your, your uh, sales leadership what we typically advise is more of a stair-step approach to revenue. So if I look at all the ways in which we generate revenue, there are some very mundane ways like entering fax orders into the system or entering email orders into the system. And so we'll start there because it's it's very low controversy, very low risk. And again, if I prove myself, then I stair-step up one more step and one more step and one more step until the next thing you know, we're doing inside sales and, and other things. So yeah, that's my recipe for success, trust and baby steps. You bet. In general, there is a lot of confusion about, I need to implement a technology. Should I go with my current SAP, Oracle, or whatever ERP system, or like other modern-ish platforms? What in your view is the trade-off between the two choices? Yeah. So first of all, you know, I, I hope people look at these as complementary solutions and not necessarily competitive solutions. So 
I really think just like the the methodology decisions that I highlighted in some of your previous questions, I think there's a there's a methodology approach to why you'd want to do this. So my feeling is over time, the, the big ERP platforms that I've worked with, the SAPs, the Oracles of the world, have really grown more through acquisition than, than their own personal organic innovation. And so, you know, their platforms tend to be very reliable, you know, very uh, configurable, but they don't always really push the envelope in, in what's capable out there. And for that reason, you know, they're always looking to their partner community for ideas of where they're going to expand their capability in the future. So, you know, in, in a sense, you can cut out the middleman, go straight to the partner who's already on the edge of the innovation. You know, so really, to me, historically, it's dependent on my situation. If we're looking to do something fast and quick and, and dirty, and it doesn't really have to be innovative, maybe we'll stick to the, the foundational uh, technology that's in the ERP platforms. But if we really want something that's more plug and play, leading edge, going to drive more value, you know, things like that, we're not going to wait around to try to configure that in the ERP systems. We're going to go straight to a partner and get that plug and play solution. And, you know, the only advice I'd give people is, you know, make sure when you're picking a partner, this is a mistake we've made in the past, make sure you're picking one that already has a a longstanding and kind of tight relationship with that ERP provider. Because if you're trying to do a bolt-on for someone who doesn't have, you know, kind of an affinity for your ERP system, that's going to be a mess. But if it's a, a strong partner with that ERP platform, you know, we found it almost as easy, sometimes easier than implementing the, the base ERP functionality. All right. Last but not the least, the closing question. Your listeners, Robert, the GBS leaders, the GBS staff, they all think about the future of GBS. Where is this going? What would you like to leave as a parting advice? I would say there is some you know, talk in the industry, I hear from some of my peers, you know, about is GBS still a relevant platform? Luckily, that's, that's, you know, a very small minority of the the folks that are out there that are questioning that. But, you know, with for me, there's just no question, it's still by far the best way to transform a company's SGNA capabilities, especially even some of the, you know, COGS abilities within the company. So, I still think if you do it right, it's still the most effective platform for transformation and driving cost savings. But it's important to understand, you know, if you fancy yourself as more of a transactional capability, you're going to do the the mundane and and, uh, straightforward work and you're just going to do it faster and cheaper. I would venture to say you're not really a GBS. You're still operating in kind of a classical shared services or outsourcing model. GBS organizations are always striving to move up the value chain and and do high value work. So it's not unusual for my centers in the past to have taken on things like global project management that are way outside the norm when you think of transactional work. So so focus on driving that higher value. I think the pandemic has really changed the nature or the, the position of GBS because these days it's all about the future of work and how are we going to work in these environments where we're forced to work from home or forced to work across geographies. And GBS has been doing that for years and years and years. We've been uh, leading the way before it was uh, before it was fancy. And the final thing I'd leave you with, you know, there's a lot of talk these days also about diversity and inclusion, which is a noble goal. Absolutely. But to me, it's more than a goal. It's it's a way of life. It's a means of survival. I think the problems are just getting more and more complex out there. 
uh, the solutions are going to require a more and more diverse set of perspectives in order to solve. Uh, we certainly see that in our shared service centers. Our customers are becoming more diverse. Our internal employee bases are becoming more diverse. So, you know, for me, this is one of the most important goals in my organization. I know that you were a runner-up in the SSON Impact Awards for Diversity and Inclusion. Yeah. Tell us about how you went about getting there. First of all, incredibly proud of my team. You know, within the first year of operating, that we were already considered alongside you know some of the other companies that were finalists that have been doing diversity and inclusion the right way for many many years. So you know, certainly just crazy proud of my team for that. Also disappointed that I didn't win. <laughs> I want to be number one, so we're going to keep pushing harder on all these fronts next year and make sure that we we uh, outright win the whole category. But yeah, I think what what stuck out for uh, the folks at SSON was exactly what I said. Even if this company didn't have a diversity and inclusion program, which it does, I would still have this at the top of my list for the very reasons that I just gave you. You know, I, I tell people all the time that the dinosaurs didn't diversify, and look what happened to them. So, you know, we don't want GBS to go the way of the of the dinosaurs. I know culture always starts at the top. So second place in within an year is an amazing accomplishment. So congratulations, Rob. This has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you for being on GBS Masterminds today. Thank you. It was a pleasure being with you, Sashi. That was the GBS Masterminds podcast. For more information, visit gbsmasterminds.com and make sure to search for GBS Masterminds in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at High Radius, thanks for listening.